This episode is sponsored by the Why Do We Say That podcast. How many times have we stopped this episode to figure out the etymology of some old-timey word or phrase? <sighs> if I had a dime for every time. Why Do We Say That is the podcast for anyone who's ever asked. Well, why do we say that? It's a father and son podcast with your hosts Scott and Liam Kelly diving deep into etymology. I loved the episode on historical insults titled, Your Mother Wears Army Boots. How dare you disparage my mother, you blasted snollygoster. You'll learn... (laughs) (laughs) It's a word. It's a fun word. You'll learn about these idioms and more on why do we say that. And you can even submit your own suggestions for words and phrases you want to know more about. Check out Why Do We Say That wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by the Ohio Hauntings and Legends Podcast. Hello, kiddies. It is only me, your friendly gravekeeper. And welcome to the Ohio Hauntings and Legends Podcast. We will be taking you to places you have never dreamt of. Hundreds, if not thousands, of haunted and abandoned locations. We will visit with the paranormal of your nightmares. Try to understand the unexplained. We will hear some old-time ghost stories that were told around the campfires years ago. Ohio has 88 counties within our state, and virtually each one of those counties has a story to tell. Ohio's history is bloodstained throughout its history. There are legends to tell, tales that have gripped towns and cities across Ohio for centuries that have been told as true events. Many of the forthcoming episodes are real. Others may be hearsay or legend. It is your choice to believe or not. Dim the lights, grab the blanket, and get ready for fear to visit you. Old-timey, crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Amber. And we are joined by special guest Chris Garcia this week. Hello, spooky friends. (laughs) (laughs) He's doubling down on the theme. He is. Chris is going to be telling us a haunting story of his own during this episode. And Amber and I are going with uh, some international ghost stories. Getting, getting out there into the wider world of spookiness. Wide world of spooky. <laughs> so, and before we get to all that, don't forget about our Patreon, where you can come and have five bonus episodes a month for just $5 a month. And you get to hear us talk about, oh, I don't know, uh, flying ghosts, like I told uh, Amber and Chris today. <laughs> But lots of good stuff over there, big back catalog, so definitely worth the five bucks. Yeah, there's definitely over a hundred bonus episodes over there, so you can just binge, binge, binge. 
That's patreon.com slash oldtimeygrimy. Link is in the show notes. So, Amber. Ooh. I'm curious. Did you uh, title your episode notes? I did. Oh, do you want to know? I'm curious. My episode notes are unearthly oofda. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, my family is Norwegian, and oofda is a very popular um, curse for us. We yell at each other during cards. My mom has potholders <laughs> and a mug, and it, it's a whole thing. So uh, my episode notes are unearthly oofda for Norway. Mine are... Sinistra, no, I can't say it right. <laughs> I know I was going to screw that up. Sinistrawin, because I uh, went with uh, France. I also have a question mark after, maybe it's depending on how blatant we're being about what, what ween is in this sense. Sinister penis? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I enjoy I sinister that. penis. Yeah, yeah, mine's just called Sure Dad. Uh, so. <laughs> That's excellent. So, I am going to tell all of you about the Chateau de Camargue. Also, I am trying my best with French pronunciations. I would like to say I'm not horrible at French pronunciations, but any French language speakers... We apologize. Yeah, I apologize in advance. I did look things up. I did put down, you know, some sort of phonetic pronunciation. You try way harder than me. I'm just going to wing it. (laughs) I just want to sound okay. So I apologize if I'm making anybody uh, cringe with my pronunciation. Just know that I'm doing my best. And uh, it's still better than my husband's who took five years of French. So (laughs) (laughs) So, the Chateau de Camargue was founded around the 12th century. Started as just a wooden tower partially to watch over and protect the local citizens, and also partially to uh, keep the the Bainac family at bay. The Bainac family were kind of eyeing up the area, maybe wanting to expand a little bit. It was eventually built up and would have complex defenses, moats, concentric ramparts. The man who established the castle was Gérard de Camargue. He was a knight of the Order of St. John of Jerusalem, but then, according to the castle's website, quote, After the tragic disappearance of the order, the commandery mysteriously passed into the hands of the Bainox, who thus inherited the decision-making power over the erection of the towers. <laughs> yeah, yes, that. <laughs> it means build. I know, but... <laughs> oh, I love myself some erect towers. <laughs> So the Bayonex did eventually get their, their hands on this area after all. And I love the, the tragic disappearance and how it mysteriously passed into their hands. There's a, Mysterious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of undercurrent going on there. So the battle during the Hundred Years' War didn't go well for the occupants of the chateau. The English captured it and kept it for years. But during that battle... Uh, one man who was fighting in the battles was the lover of the Earl of Camargue's daughter. And in the battle, he also didn't fare well. He was beheaded. Hmm. And now there <laughs> What did you say? Ooh, I mean, of all the, the type of heads to have, a head like a bee, that's not... <sighs> Those British do not, do not take prisoners. So, no, no, they don't, apparently. So there was a ghost. Hmm. Um, 
hunting. Was it a headless one? It was not a headless one. It was not him. It was not the lover. Did it have the head of a bee? It did not have the head of a bee either, although mm-hmm. there, there is something from the animal kingdom involved here. It was not the daughter. It was not her lover who haunts the chateau's ruins. It's his horse. Really? Searching for his master. Oh. So we have a ghost horse. <laughs> I feel bad for the horse, but also very confused. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder if one aspect of the castle's history influenced that particular legend, we'll call it, because there is a prehistoric cave beneath the castle. And it has, like, engravings and, Chris, you know art, what do they call it when it's like an engraving, but the opposite way, raised? Embossed. Close enough. (laughs) It's it's like a raised relief of a life-size horse. Really? That's the word. I I even had it in my, no, I didn't. (laughs) I was going to say, I had it in my notes. Subculture. Subculture. (laughs) Everybody. Three months, he forgets the word subculture. And then he texts me and he's like, I forgot that word that starts with sub again. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so they're a life-sized horse relief in the rocks. Hmm. And we'll put a picture of that up on the social media. That is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Old Timey Crimey. So it's life-size, though. Yeah, it's life-size. It's uh, the size of an actual horse. A big horse or a small horse? It looks like a decent-sized horse. Hmm. Also, I thought you said that the ghost wasn't of her lover. Oh, no. Booyah. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. Mrs. Hands. (laughs) (laughs) So the families living in the castle started abandoning it in the 1500s, and for 400 years, it was left to go to ruin. Then, a descendant of the original Camark family decided to fix that. Restoration started in 1994, and you can visit and tour and do all kinds of activities. They have an escape room that just blatantly rips off Indiana Jones. So here's the description. Your mission in this detective game will be to continue the quest of the famous archaeologist Indy, whom we have not heard from for several months who disappeared while he was trying to unravel this mystery. I'm fairly certain George Lucas's lawyers are on line one. I mean, it, it even continues. The Ark of the Covenant is said to hold a secret that has been protected for centuries by an evil mechanism. So yes, blatant copyright infringement. Also, Dan Brown is probably annoyed. I kind of feel like he's like permanently annoyed. I don't know why. <laughs> but Oh, he seems like a perfectly lovely man who has far too much money to live. <laughs> yeah. And in July and August, they have a murder party called Murder at the Castle. (laughs) Murder party! Murder party! Great disco song. There's a a fantastic movie called Murder Party that we watched one Halloween, and it is something. Why have I never heard of this? And I I will try and find it for you. I don't know where it exists because we had it on like a random DVD somewhere, but it's, it's, it's really... A hell of a movie. I really wish, though, that at the murder party, they actually murder someone. That would be great, but... That'd be very French. Oh, yeah. Well, and the horse needs a rider. Oh, good point. Yes, right? You've got to have a ghost rider for your ghost horse. It needs to happen. So they say uh, on the website, in the 13th century, in the Valley of Bion, 
Facing the mist and the darkness by the light of his torch, the head of the guard, during his last tour of the round, made a macabre discovery of the castle is found dead on its construction site. Act of witchcraft? Betrayal? This is all Google translated from their website, so... (laughs) So they're incorporating a lot of different elements into their various events. Witchcraft, some sort of, you know, finding somebody (laughs) dead... And, you know, uh, Indiana Jones for some reason. You can also, of course, tour. And that is both the ruins and the prehistoric caves. So you can go see the horsey. That would actually be really neat to go see, like, the prehistoric caves. Oh, it it does look really, really neat. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. There are workshops where you can learn archery and how to write the poems of courtly love. So they're really digging into kind of the medieval thing. I I get archery, but, like... a. The poetry class makes me want to throw up a little bit. I think a lot of it is for school children. Okay. You can play the games of yesteryear. And uh, this would be what you would go for, Amber. You can go abseiling from the top of the Chateau's Keep, which is 80 meters high, and it says adrenaline guaranteed. That would be fun. Yeah. And it's pretty cool because it's not the renovated type of Chateau that is kind of the standard now that has guests and, and hosts events. It's more restored close to what it was in the 1400s with the preservation of the prehistoric cave and all that. And some parts of it are from long ago. So it's, it's not so, sort of a, a semi-modern chateau. It's the, the classic old chateau from when, when chateaus were real chateaus. When chateaus were real chateaus. But there's not a damn thing on the website about the ghost horse. <laughs> But you know what? I noticed that a lot of a lot of the places, especially that I research, don't want to tell you about it because they want you to go there and tell the story themselves. And so I ran across that problem a lot, too, because they keep it very close to the best. They're like, if you would like to learn more about this ghost horse, visit us. <laughs> Click here for tickets. <laughs> well, it's your turn to tell us about what you learned by not going there. <laughs> This is what I learned by not going there. Nothing. Um, so I'm going to tell you about Akershus Fortress. Rolls right off the tongue. Akershus. Akershus. So the Akershus Fortress, or castle, was built sometime in the 1300s. It initially served as a defensive line for Oslo to protect the royal residence in the capital of Norway. It was a very medieval castle that was later a military base. And a prison. And the Nazis even stayed there for a number of years. Are we going to have ghost Nazis? We might. Oh, my God. I don't know how to feel about this. Well, because at least they're dead. So there's that. <laughs> well, we'll see there. So basically, this, this was like to protect the royals. And then during World War II, for whatever reason, the fortress was surrendered with no combat to the Nazis. It's believed that most of the killings that happened in the fortress were done during that time. Surprise face. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm shocked. I'm shocked. And then it was also used as a prison, so it housed a lot of criminals for many, many years. And then it lists a bunch of people like we know who they are and we don't. So I'm just going to spare you the uh, (laughs) difficult names. Um, But when it was a prison, they had a section called the slavery. Oh, no. Oh, that seems on brand. It was actually I kind of maybe a good idea. So prisoners, hear me out. Okay. Good behavior prisoners, like they didn't do anything too terribly bad. They didn't kill a bunch of people. 
they could be rented out for work to be done in the city. So it was almost like the, the chain gangs a little bit. So you could basically say, like, this guy is here, but he's, he's, he's really nice and he doesn't kill people. And be like, all right, well, he can help us build some roads then. I think they'd pay them a little bit of money, but they would, they would rent them to, like, leave and, and help with city projects. So work release. Yeah, it's like a work release, yeah. But with, without much of a paycheck or, or possibly any. Okay, I'm going to go with my stance on this was at least they didn't torture them. Yeah, I mean, it's like, hey, you're here. C- come build some roads. Infrastructure. Rent a person. I see. Yeah. But the Akershus Fortress is said to be the most haunted in Oslo. So some of the famous are Malkanison and Mal- Mantelgistin. Rolls right off the tongue. I'm so good at these. <laughs> so Malkanison is a demon dog. So this doggo guards the gates of the castle. He's a good boy. But anybody who sees this good boy will die in the next three months. Oh, but I really want to rate him 14 out of 10, but that's that's kind of pushing it. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, it is unclear where this story came from, but it is widely believed. And if you see the demon dog, you will die within three months. Wow. Uh, there are reports that say that this dog was originally, like, a guard dog for the castle, and somebody had buried him alive. Oh, What the... Which is why he haunts the castle and kills anyone that sees him. I would, too. I'm gonna... I'm gonna go... He's he's a good boy. (laughs) He's a good boy. Just, I don't want to see him. I will not pet the the good boy. And then... You're not gonna boop the snoot? (laughs) Not gonna boop the snoot. And then Mantelgeestin is the ghost of a woman who is often seen in the castle. She is frequently seen walking towards the chamber where she was placed when she was at the fortress. She's got no facial features and usually appears from the darkness. Ooh. The no facial features creeps me out so bad. Faceless things are among the most terrifying. Faceless and long robes when she decides to show herself to people visiting. They have no idea who she is, how she died, or why she's haunting there. Because, again, a lot of people died here. So they're kind of just confused with this. There are also the night pyres, or the burning women. These are reportedly visible before any fire at the fortress. And they are described as baby-sized women who have frightening laughter and ugly grins. Baby, what? Baby-sized women. <laughs> Frightening laughter, ugly grins. Oh, my. Uh, that is uh, grim and weird and delightful in a way. I don't even know what to do with that. I don't know. I know. know. It's amazing. <laughs> I had to include it. I'm, I don't know how to feel. So one of the, the bu- one of the buildings in the fortress also housed who is considered to be the Norwegian Robin Hood. Oh. His name was Ole Hoyland. And he was able to escape after planning for four years. But after three years of freedom, they caught him and brought him back. He tried to get out of prison again, but couldn't do so. And then he asked for a pardon in 1846 and in 1847, which was denied. And after his second request in 1847 was rejected, he committed suicide in his cell. 
So um, he's been seen, the Norwegian Robin Hood. Ghostly guards have also been seen by some visitors appearing and disappearing. And there is also a ghost horse. Another ghost horse. Another ghost horse. Galloping, screams from the people that were executed there. And uh, it's believed that the ghostly horse galloping is the same horse that was shot by Norwegian soldiers when the horse's owner, a drunken Swedish soldier, rode alone against the fortress walls, claiming he will conquer Norway. So a drunk Swede rides a horse, I'm going to conquer Norway, and then the horse haunts the place. (laughs) Um, You don't have to say drunken Swede. Well, drunken is understood. Oh, okay. Well, the Swede was uh, obviously shot by Norwegian forces, as this is a fortress, and he is a a one-man attack. (laughs) I don't know. One punch man. Yeah. And there's also uh, reports of prison chains rattling, whispers, scratching, uh, a force pushing people when they enter. All sorts of fun stuff. Mm. So it sounds like side effects of Ambien. Or that, yeah. I've been on Ambien and yes. So the Akersh's <laughs> Fortress is actually, uh, it's in a military-owned area, but it is open to the public, especially tourists. They really want tourists from six in the morning until nine o'clock in the evening. Wow. Those are some hours. That's a couple of shifts, man. Yeah, yeah. So it is still open. 6 a.m. to go. I don't know. They must be really early risers. They have a lot of official events there. They've got special dinners. It's actually only 10 minutes away from the city center. So, I mean, they have a lot of a lot of people that go and visit in hopes of seeing some of these ghostly things. Hopefully not the demon dog, though. Yeah, because that's, that, that's bad. Yeah, good boy or not, no demon dog. And I guess, uh, now that I think about it, in Norway, hours are a little different as far as daylight is concerned. Well, because there are times that for three months you won't have daylight. Yeah, so it's, it's not really going to be as, as structured as everything opens at 8 a.m. <laughs> and closes They don't five. care. There's no sunlight anyway. What difference does it make? <laughs> Your turn again. My turn again? Okay. All right. I am going to tell you about the Abbey de Mortimer. That is the Abbey of Our Lady of Mortimer. Hmm. Literally dead water. It was an abbey built near a pond, said to be the most haunted abbey in France. The local lore was that the marshes in the area were the home of some pagan gods so it seemed like having an abbey slash monastery put up there would get rid of all that. Just, you know, be banished. The pagan gods will just build a building and that'll do it. So here we have, there's kind of a theme in some French ghost stories of the, the Dame Blanche, the white lady, which you also see in many other cultures. And I have uh, a couple of those in my story, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just this weird thing that when we think of ghosts, we think woman in white. And uh, she has a name attached to her. It is Mathilde Lampress, whose father established the abbey. She was born in the 1100s in Sutton Courtenay in Oxfordshire. I probably mispronounced about 75% of that. That's fine. Go with it. It's not a real language. <laughs> I, told, I told Amber, I was like, I'm not going to pronounce half of the letters in my episode notes. To which I responded, so that's how you speak French. <laughs> yes. We. Oui. Her father was also William the Conqueror's youngest son, the English king Heinrich or Henry I, and her mother was Matilda of Scotland. 
She entered into a marriage contract to Henry V, but not that Henry V, uh, King of the Romans, when he was 24 and she was eight. Ew. (laughs) They married when she was 12 and he was 28. Mm. I know. It was the first. That was half a lifetime of her waiting. That's so gross. It's so gross. Ah, she bleeds from below. It is time. Exactly. She did help him with ruling the Holy Empire and was the Holy Roman Empress. Mm. They had no children and he died of cancer at 39, leaving her a widow with no heir born to her royal husband at the age of 23. So she pretty much was like, I guess I better go somewhere else. And uh, she did have a few German princes proposed, but she chose to go to Normandy. And there her father married her off again, this time to Geoffrey V. d'Anjou. It seems like this was a political marriage, but not a good one, even from strategy's sake, because he was just like a future count. He wasn't even a count yet. And she's like, I was an empress. Mismatch, hello. (laughs) I'm like up here and he's the whole way down here. Exactly, exactly. And he was also 11 years younger than her. So wait, 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 wait. It was, I think he was in his teens. I think, I, I don't have the exact timing, but I think it was about five years after she was widowed. Okay, so she's like in her late 20s and her dad is trying to marry her off to a, t- a, a teenager with no title. And I'm, I'm sorry, like not, not to offend anyone with like age gap romance, but that's gross. <laughs> that is really gnarly to me. I cannot look at a teenager and be like, ooh. Like I look at teenagers like, ew. <laughs> and that's no offense to any teenagers. It's just that we're definitely out of your age range as far as matches are concerned. Yeah, like it that, it does not excite me. And in, in fact, like it, if anything, it turns me off. I'm like, I would have to teach them so many freaky fucking things. <laughs> she does with, uh, with the future count have three sons and names the eldest Henry. Oh. Yes. She was supposed to be her father's heir to the throne of England, chosen by him. He said, you're going to be my heir, because his eldest son died. And yet her cousin had the support of the powers that be when her father died in 1135. She's like, to hell with that, and went to England in 1139 and started a civil war that became known as the Anarchy. Nice. I love it. But even though she took her cousin prisoner and was pretty damn successful, Londoners still were like, nah, we don't want you. Nah, you're a lady. And we're not going to be for that for another several hundred years. I would just kill the cousin and move on. Uh, They they seem to kind of have this detente for several years, honestly. It's it's a very strange situation. She does take the title Lady of the English. She manages to get control of the southwest part of the country, but after some back and forth, eventually she goes back to Normandy and leaves her son, Henry, to take care of things in England. And he even gets the crown when Matilde's cousin, the king, dies. So it sort of seems to work out. He probably, I don't know exactly how English law worked back then, but he probably would have had to have been named successor by the cousin. So it seems like there was still some, well, we're family, and if you don't rule, then 
who's gonna... some peasant, you know? <laughs> or an enemy. She's still active in politics and government. Uh, she takes care of Normandy for her son. She was said to be very, very pious. And the monks of the Abbey de Montemer were some of her favorites. But she wouldn't even live to see the Abbey totally completed. Construction took from her father's time to beyond her son's time, 10 years after his death. It took nearly a century to fully complete it. But obviously, there were people living there and, and working as working as monks, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Serving as yeah, monks. Church builders are lazy. They're really lazy people. There's one in Spain that's been built for almost, I think, 150 years, and it's still not done. Um, part of that, though, might be the siestas. Yeah, those siestas, they could they could have a little impact on efficiency, I would say, but they sound great. They do sound lovely. <laughs> she died in 1167 at 65 years old, and the epitaph on her tomb at the Abbey of Beck, not at the Abbey of Montemet, read, Great by birth, greater by marriage, still greater by her descendants. Here, Henri's daughter, wife, and mother. Because her father was a Henry, her husband was a Henry, and her son was a Henry. Ugh. It yeah. was just a really, it was the Henryest time. It was the Henryest time of the year. <laughs> yes, it was. Oh, Henry. Oh, Henry. But she's not even buried at that abbey, at the Abbey de Montemer. And yet it's said that her ghost, a white lady, roams there. There's mention in a few sources that at some point her father imprisoned her there for five years. I kind of tend to think maybe it would be the period of time between when she came back from having been the empress and she was like, I don't want to marry that little count or future count. And he's like, well, then let's see how you feel about spending five years imprisoned in an abbey. And then as soon as he's like, fine, I'll marry him. Then she gets out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's my guess. She's said to be dressed in all, all in white, a Dame Blanche. And if you spot her, you would be wise to look away. Although it might be tempting to take a second glance because the color of her gloves is said to tell your fortune. Naturally, mm. black gloves mean something bad will happen in the next year and white gloves mean something good will happen. Black gloves are like, you're going to die or somebody around you is going to die. White gloves are like, well, you know, you might get married, have a baby. But if you see her twice, you will die soon. So probably best to not take that second look. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the demon dog. You just, you, do, you shouldn't, no. Yeah. The Abbey grew and expanded in the centuries after Mathilde's death, becoming sort of a central hub of the area with as many as 200 monks and property holdings all around the area from houses to hospices to pubs. Which doesn't feel super monkish. I mean, I know that there were monks that brewed beer and everything, but it, there, there did seem to be some frowning upon that much capitalism in, in, thing. in church business. And in the 1500s, it's said that a garage, which is a female <laughs> werewolf, was captured nearby, and her captors took her to the abbey, because, of course, the monks would know what to do. And they only sort of did... They tried to do an exorcism, but all that did was chase out the evil spirit that had made the woman into a werewolf. So she was free, but the abbey wasn't. The spirit went into the walls of the abbey, where it would lurk for the coming centuries, 
put a pin in that spirit because we're going to come back to it after we do a little bit more of the continuing chronology chronology of the abbey. During the French Revolution, there were four monks remaining there, and they were hunted and killed because of a misconception that they were hiding money and or treasure in the abbey. They're monks. They're not dragons. But also remember, the abbey had a lot of holdings. So there's that, too. This from the world's creepiest places. They were found and executed without mercy, and it is said that their blood was mixed with wine from the broken casks and drunk by their murderers. And they liked to materialize in the woods around the abbey. Also put a pin in them. So uh, in 1863, the De La Rue family moved into the abbey and they started having some experiences. There was the sense that someone would be following you down a hallway. There was chanting heard from afar and even somebody whispering in Madame De La Rue's ear in Latin. One night they saw light coming from the library, which was locked. And then the library doors flew open as did the window, and every painting in the first floor corridor was either on the floor or turned backwards to face the wall. Wow. Yeah. Somebody didn't like their taste in artwork. (laughs) Very much critical of the artwork here. Very much the first contemporary artworks that were very conceptual in work, very influential on future French artists, like Picasso was French, right? I don't actually know art. I felt like Picasso was Italian. But I could be wrong. Well, there was a lot of jumping around from country to country, <laughs> generally. So he could have been an Italian who lived in France. We, we don't know anything about Picasso, apparently. So not our strong suit. Actually, turns out he was Spanish. Oh, okay. That actually makes sense. Which would explain why it takes him so long to build a goddamn church. And he did live in France for a time. I know that because we, now that I remember, we visited a museum uh, to some of his works from when he lived in the Riviera. So... There. I remembered a thing, and I connected it, and I said it on the words. So the De La Rue's son had a fiancé, a lovely young woman, and she spent the night once, and only once. They gave her the only spare room, which was known as the pink room. In some translations, it's the red room. Ooh. Yeah. Which was next to the library. She had a horrendous night there. She did not sleep at all. And it seemed that every object in the room had a mind of its own. So basically everything in the room is just like jumping up and down and flying around the room. I would not have stayed more than five minutes. Yeah, she was still there when they came to wake her in the morning. But there was no need to wake her because she was trying to battle the haunted objects with the tongs from the fireplace. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. That that engagement ended. Uh, she was she was supposed to move into the house after the marriage, and she just nope. Mm-mm. She didn't want to spend another minute there, much less a lifetime. So she just bolted. Then, the De La Rue's daughter took the pink room for herself, and she said it was always pretty calm. Although she always felt like someone or something was watching her. There were only really two events that happened during her time there. One time, a coat that was hung on a hook while she was watching it lifted itself off the hook and then just floated to the floor where it lay down. And then one night she saw the monks from the window. 
those four monks in a nice little procession across the lawn. And then the garage comes back in 1884. A sharecropper named Roger Sabareau was doing a little bit of uh, poaching in the woods around the abbey, and he spots this female werewolf. And uh, in terror, he shoots the thing dead. It's this yellow-eyed creature that's looking at him menacingly. And uh, then it transformed back into a human, and he found out that he had killed his wife. Whoa! Locals surmised that the spirit of the wolf that had been exercised so long ago had slipped from the walls of the abbey to possess her. And that's what happens with interspecies marriages. You do not marry a werewolf if you're not expecting to shoot it. I was going to say, that's what happens when you poach. Well, in, in my head, I, I'm just like, this guy just killed his wife. And it was like, but she was a werewolf. That's what happened. I mean, haven't you heard the stories? I think you're dead on. <laughs> Pun not intended, but also enjoyed. So I think you're dead on. She nagged all the time. I mean, she was a werewolf. <laughs> that garage. The Delarue family did have an exorcism in 1921. There had been many throughout the years. And never with any success, and that was the case here yet again. There was a quiet period, but then they just were like, and they put the Abbey on the market. And it sat for 10 years until someone bought it. But it wasn't restored, at least as far as I can tell, so it went to pot for a while. It was bought in 1965 by a Monsieur Lerdoux. There actually was somebody, a farm worker, who was sleeping in the basement. His name was Monsieur Lucien, and... Monsieur Lerdoux asked, hey, you know, do you want to keep working here? And Lucien said, sure, I'd love that, but I need another place to live because I've been here for half a decade and every night I hear footsteps in the hallway above my bed. He said, these steps in the hall at night, I hear them so well that they wake me up. It's been going on for years and I cannot take it anymore. For nothing in the world would I want to go back to sleep there. Lerdoux had heard all the stories. He was not super surprised, so he set Lucienne up with a cottage. So that was nice. A couple other stories from the Abbey. There is said to be a spring in the Abbey. And if you're a young girl on the prowl for a husband, you can go and, I guess, again, translations are a lot of what we're working with. But you can toss a hairpin in the spring or maybe even just look in it. And you'll see your future husband's face in the waters. But... You better take it seriously, because if you do this jokingly, or if you're, quote, less than virtuous, you might end up possessed. So take notes, sluts. Don't look in the water. Nope. If you have had sex, don't do it. Yeah. So in World War II, an English paratrooper bailed out while flying over the abbey, and he ended up in the woods nearby. The enemy was close on his tail, and then a monk just stepped out of the woods, out of the trees, and took him to a cell of the resistance and saved his life. The abbey was uninhabited at that point. The last monks had been killed in the revolution 150 years prior. No, still nice monks. Nice monks. monks, yes. There is a goblin cat, which is said to be guarding this mythical treasure of the abbey. And the thing is, all these stories, they don't seem 
to come out in any historical accounts of the Abbey until 1986, when a pamphlet comes out, Les Légendes des Mortimer, Legends of Mortimer. The timing here is interesting, as it's when the Abbey's owner started a museum dedicated to all the Abbey's legends and ghosts. Seemed really keen to promote these supernatural aspects and stories. And then in 1999, a photograph supposedly showing Mathilde slash the White Lady was published, but then it was debunked in 2011, and ghost hunters and paranormal researchers in general look askance at this whole thing. But the website really tries to pump, pump it up. They're still, they're still going for the promo here. Here's uh, the history section of the website ends thusly. So imagine, in the heart of the forest of Lyon, far from any dwelling, Nestled in a valley through which flows the source Fouillebroc, the ruins of an abbey, Mortimer, kingdom of God on earth, but also kingdom of Satan, if we believe the many legends about it. They're getting dramatic. So nowadays, again, it's kind of a site to visit. You can see the ruins. You can go to the ghost museum. You can go to the fountain of singles, as they're calling it. Fountain of singles. (laughs) You can go to a ghost night, which seems like it started as a kind of spooky tales and ghost hunting night and has really evolved into a full-on performance. Many people call it uh, the most haunted site in France, but as I discovered in my research, many people call every other haunted site the most haunted site in France. (laughs) So you have that. So that is the Abbey de Montemer. Well, while you're on the subject of monks... I'm going to tell you about the Nideros Cathedral and the Bloody Monk. (laughs) Perfect segue. So Trondheim is the third largest city in Norway. Within this city sits one of Europe's oldest and largest stone churches. The Nideros Cathedral is a medieval cathedral built in 1070. It was restored in 1814. So this church is the result of many craftsmen who spent their entire lives working on it. Again, to Chris's point about churches take a really long time. (laughs) So um, several generations of Norwegians have seen the ghost of a bloody monk in this cathedral. Like most good stories, there are legends as well as the real haunting. He has been seen by many, many people, but there is one particular account that stands out. This was published in a local newspaper in 1930 when Marie Gildisht, 1924, saw this monk during a church service. Blood was dripping from his robes. This figure's sad, bright blue eyes locked on hers. Ooh. He had a tonsure and wore monk's robes. His face was beautiful with sharp lines and glowing eyes. The monk walked right through one of the choir members attending the mass. While the priest was in front of the altar, the monk moved behind him. She was sitting in the pews and watched as the monk moved towards the priest, placed his hands around his neck and started to tighten. Now, you might think that Marie just nodded off during this sermon, but uh, that is not the case. There are many other churchgoers at the time 
they were able to see a pair of hands appear out of thin air. Ooh, so where is the monk bloody? Because, is it, okay. We'll get there. All right. (laughs) So afterwards, the priest says that during the sermon, he very suddenly felt a sense of desperation settle over him right before something stuck in his throat. Ooh. Then he raised his head. And Marie saw that he had a stripe of blood across his throat. Oh my, that is creepy. Marie said that she was repelled by it and averted her eyes downward only to look up a moment later and see the monk standing in the area near the church archway again. Despite the blood, she said that he was very young and very good looking. (laughs) She is, uh, she did give a very... A more detailed description of yeah. the monk than we usually get of, of ghosts in general. Well, they made eye contact. She is uh, she's thirsty for this ghost. I looked back up. The monk was standing with his arms crossed. Then he just disappeared. Chanting and organ music are often heard coming from the cathedral late at night when nobody is there. And there are many other respectable eyewitnesses who claim to have seen this monk who apparently, the monk's first act is to throttle someone he does not like. He, he's, he's, he's not a nice guy, Marie. You can do better. He, he's a whole mood. <laughs> he is a he mood. really is. He's like, I don't like what you're saying. I'm going to choke you. <laughs> so they've seen him not only in the cathedral, but in smaller chapels outside and near the cemetery. So all around the grounds. There are other church members who have seen the monk's hands reach out and choke other people. This is how he shows displeasure with people he does not like. Some claim they've even had conversations with the monk. Recent accounts still about the chanting and organ music. So this this is still like hundreds of years in the making. And then there's another phenomenon also going on here. So there is one small basement room. It is so low that you cannot stand upright in it. Early in the cathedral's history, this basement room was used as a tomb for prominent figures from Trondheim. Ever since, people have spotted rose petals being scattered across the room's floor. Ooh, that's kind of a nice little that's nice thing. Yeah. So witnesses have inquired about these petals, and they're told that they just appear. About once a week, fresh rose petals appear, and the wilted ones disappear. No one knows who does this. The entrance to this room is always kept barred and locked. Huh. So once a week, old ones disappear, new ones arrive. It's a ghost with a a sense of schedule. (laughs) There is a schedule. There is a schedule. And uh, that is about all I have. The ghost of the monk, though, is so popular in Norway that it was made into a TV series. It inspired Frid Ingolstadt's novel, The Monk, in 1991 as well. That is quite the ghost. He's a whole mood. I don't (laughs) like you. I'm going to choke you. He didn't like that. He did not like that priest's sermon that day. But he's a hot ghost. (laughs) Apparently. Oh, Marie needs to get on Tinder real bad. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. Fall is in the air, and we could not be more excited! 
You know what else excites us? Best Fiends, our favorite puzzle game. I'm always so excited to see what new challenges and events are going on whenever I open the app. That's just one of the reasons that the fun never ends with Best Fiends. Once you start playing, you will not want to stop because it's way more fun than the other matching puzzle games out there. There are tons of cute characters to collect and literally thousands of levels to play. Speaking of which, it's level check time. Speaking of thousands, I'm at 2,625. I guess speaking of thousands too, I'm at 4,845. So come catch up with us. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This episode is sponsored by The Haunting of Redburn Manor by Eve S. Evans. Paranormal horror author Eve S. Evans introduces a brand new spine-chilling release, The Haunting of Redburn Manor. Available on Amazon today. They wanted to go viral. Now, they're just hoping to survive. Tracking Pure Evil, a podcast dedicated to the spooky things that go bump in the night, have put together a team. A team with one sole purpose, to increase their viewership by staying in the truly terrifying Redburn Manor. With over 200 years of bad luck, death, murder, suicides, accidents, and absolute terror, they've found the perfect place. Or so they think. The goal? Going viral, of course. At first, the place seems harmless, an old house with exaggerated rumors, until late in the first day of their four-day ghost hunt, when something out of the corner of someone's eye sends the group into panic mode. And those disembodied voices, are they ghosts or something more sinister? Never mind going viral. Will they survive their stay or will the house swallow them? This compelling, suspenseful thriller is perfect for fans of Darcy Coates and Jeremy Bates. For lovers of horror, paranormal thrillers, and suspense fiction. So, Chris, you have a tale for us that is not international, but is in fact, I believe, quite all-American. So, my dad knew everybody. It was very rare that I would go and see him without getting a dozen stories of him, you know, hanging out with Dwayne The Rock Johnson's dad, Rocky Johnson. I always thought that was just a lie, you know, just, you know, make himself seem cool. But apparently when I actually met Rocky Johnson, I said, uh, yeah, my dad always said you were a really nice guy. And he said, uh, who was your dad? I said, Johnny Garcia, not the famous one. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, short Mexican with the mustache. Nice guy. Uh, so <laughs> that, you know, occasionally these come true. And he was really interested in the paranormal. And he was friends with people like Sylvia Brown. My mom knew her. He knew the Warrens, and he even went to go visit them on his one trip back east, and uh, he got to hold Annabelle. I cool. would not do that. Amber would. And nothing bad happened. I don't know if I'm saddened by that or not. But he was a security guard most of the time, and every year around Christmas, he would work either at Seas Candy or at Toys R Us. Now, in Sunnyvale, California, the heart of Silicon Valley, there is a Toys R Us. Was. It's gone now, sadly. The building's still there, but it's no longer Toys R Us. And it's where we all wanted our Christmas gifts. And it has a reputation for being haunted. One of the most famous stories is, is 
pretty early in the opening, there were a whole bunch of the dolls had fallen off the shelves onto the floor. And so one of the attendants went and put it up at the end of the day, putting it back on the shelf. And started hearing muffled talking coming from the shelf. And these were talking dolls. So, you know, took back and like three or four back, there was the doll that was talking. And they just said, well, something must, circuit must be short. The battery must be, you know, weird or something. And went in to go and check and take the battery out. And there was no batteries in it. It was talking on its own. Oh. Scary. But the whole thing that happened there was just balls would end up bouncing all around. Things would fly off shelves. Uh, people would hear kids' voices. There was, and one that I sort of remember was, you would hear the ringing of the bicycle bell, the ching ching, you know, when you pull back. And that would be heard, like, when there was no one around that aisle. So my dad was a security guard there and during Christmas time. And he went into the back room. There was sort of a little, you would go through the two swinging doors, and there was a bathroom on one side, and I think the break room was at the far end. And he opened it up, and there was this big black mass in front of him. And he sort of said what it looked like was someone just erased everything and it was sort of black just no form it was just there like kind of like a cloud and he took a step forward and it took a step forward it actually closed the space between them Ooh, mm, mm. of course he went out because he would too and when he came back did it again step forward another step forward and it was super close at this point he went back again well, the third time, because he really had to go to the bathroom, apparently. <laughs> step forward, step forward, and the third step, he actually passed through it, and it was gone. Now it's inside him. <laughs> <laughs> no effect on him, nothing, just gone. And this sort of thing is, you know, not a super normal thing. That you know, sort of the black cloud sort of floating through space is... A sort of a classic in haunting stories, but one of the things that I find interesting about the story is that there is sort of a precedent for it, there being activity there. Now, way back in the before times, called the late 19th, early 20th century, that whole thing was called Murphy's, the entire town of Sunnyvale. And Murphy's was a a city slash sort of growing place. It was mostly farmland. And right where that is, there was a house. And, of course, there's the story that a, I believe, Swedish immigrant, Johnny Johnson, or Yanni Johnson, I think is how it was, would have been actually pronounced. Did he go jogging every morning? And he was a workman. And he, of course, was in love with the owner's daughter as is always the case in these stories. And he was going to ask her to marry him and run away with him. And one day he was out chopping wood and he chopped off his foot. Hey, no more <laughs> yogging for him. Stop no. looking around. And he dragged himself towards the house and he bled, basically bled out. He didn't make it. And, of course, they would eventually knock that down and they would build the Toys R Us. Pretty much from the beginning, this house, the 
Toys R Us was haunted. Like, there were things happening from the very, very start. And very famously, Sylvia Brown and the folks from KTVU Channel 2, there's only one, two, uh, decided to do an investigation. And my dad supposedly was supposed to go on it, but apparently got into a fight with my mom over who would watch me, and he ended up staying home. But this is where the most concrete evidence ever happened. So everyone was sitting on the floor in the aisle. Actually, it was the aisle that, when I was a kid, because uh, this is just about 1977, 78, 79, somewhere in there. And when I was a kid, that aisle was the games aisle. I think at this point it was still dolls. And everyone's sitting on the floor. And Sylvia's doing her talking thing. Who knows if she was being legit or not. I think she had powers, but also was a fraud. Weird, huh? But you could see, standing very clearly, and the, they had one of those night vision cameras, you could see in the photo, there's one guy standing, and he looks like he's wearing jeans and a work shirt and has his uh, thumbs hooked into his belt loops. And everyone says it looks like Yanni Janssen. So that's sort of the, the Toys R Us in Sunnyvale, California. And there are other Sunnyvale stories. It's a particularly weird place. It's not Sunnydale, like from Buffy, <laughs> but it probably is on a Hellmouth. Uh, there's the Fresno, I think it's called the Fresno Nightwalker. And there's a version of that that's supposed to be, uh, that's supposed to walk down uh, El Camino Real, which is, you know, the King's Highway or sort of the main streets through town. There's a couple other houses that are haunted. Uh, so, yeah, that is my story of Sunnyvale, California. And the Haunted Toys R Us. All right. Thank you, Chris. That was amazing. All right. I have one more. And I have the Jardin des Tuileries. So I've always thought that Tuileries sounds so romantic because it has kind of this very like musical sound to it. Yeah, it sounds like toiletry to me. Oh, okay. Well, not to me, but I, I get it. But really, it's just uh, tile because they made tiles there oh. <laughs> in, the, in the very, very olden times. And then Catherine de' Medici started building a palace there after the death of her husband, King Henry II. It's just Henry's everywhere. It's raining Henry's. Raining Henry's. So, the Henryest episode ever. For you. Yeah, really. So the, the Jardin du Tuileries was the palace garden and eventually became a public park. The palace was started in 16, nope, 1564, and the garden was designed by a Florence landscape architect. It was about 1,600 by 1,000 feet and included fountains, a labyrinth, and a grotto, as well as kitchen gardens and a vineyard. Of course, because it's France. <laughs> you gotta have your vineyard. You gotta have it. It belongs there. And if you're in France and you're Catherine de' Medici, you also have to have your own personal assassin. So he went by the name Jean Le Cocher, which translates to John the Skinner or John the Flayer. So okay. I think we can guess what his uh, favorite, uh, favorite method, method was. was. Yes. So as the queen's assassin, he had a lot of dirt on her. And eventually, Catherine figured that she needed to kind of get rid of him and maybe start fresh. So she had a guy named Neuville murder John the Skinner. He committed the murder in the garden, the Jardin de Tuileries, then just left John the Skinner there. Came back later, 
and the man he'd murdered just a little while ago was nowhere to be seen. But over the next few days, nobody really raised any alarm or even mentioned, you know, having found the corpse, carried the corpse away, anything. He was never seen again. However, what did raise an alarm was the Queen's astrologist's latest vision. Only a couple days after John the Skinner's death, the astrologist said that everyone in the palace was going to die horribly. You know what they're like? I, I don't know why. I'm just like, are you sure that he was actually dead? Nobody verified this. Like, are we sure he even died and the two assassins weren't like, hey, Queen's trying to kill you. You want to get out of here and grab a drink and figure something out? Yeah, and why do you just kill someone and then walk away and then come back? That doesn't make any sense. Like, be prepared. Bring whatever you need. If you need something to cover him or wrap him up in, bring that first. You know, Be prepared, for God's sake. This does not feel legitimate. This is like the cliffhanger of a soap opera where, like, okay, and then he just gets up and walks away. Like, ha-ha, gotcha. Yeah, if it was an attempted murder and it didn't actually kill him, if somebody just tried to kill you and you're the queen's assassin and you know she's got it out for you now, wouldn't you just, like, go elsewhere? And splay people there? Well, I would probably go and plot my revenge. That too, yeah. But the astrologist tells us that it doesn't matter because you're all going to die terrible deaths and Jean's ghost will haunt this palace until it is no more. Somehow Jean became known as L'Homme Rouge, or the Red Man, and after that he started showing up all around the Tuileries. Descriptions of him vary, but here's an example of one. This mysterious being is generally clothed in red. He is hump-backed, cloven-footed, and one-eyed. From his misshapen mouth, a prodigious tongue lolls. So not a pretty ghost. No, definitely no bleeding monk. Yeah, yeah, nobody's, nobody's eyeing him up and thinking about asking him for drinks after church services. And his single eye is said to be so piercing and unearthly that it terrifies even the most courageous. It seems like whenever the red man shows up, life's just about to go real downhill for whoever's butt is sitting in the throne at the moment. So, May 1610, there's a red man sighting. And then Henry IV is assassinated. And then uh, Marie Antoinette... We know she had a, a really good future ahead of her. Yeah. Her ladies-in-waiting saw him, and uh, she just absolutely lost her head. Oh, I had to. So she lost her head like 14 months later. But still, there was a big event that happened a few days after they saw the Red Man. So in 1789, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were forced out of Versailles and taken to the Tuileries, where they're basically kind of held prisoner in like a nice place. Fancy prisoner. Fancy prisoner. They were there for about three years when the palace was stormed on August the 10th, and that was just after the sighting. So bad shit happening. Louis XVI himself saw the Red Man in 1793, and the Red Man at that point was wearing the revolutionary's cap of liberty, as well as a tricolor cockade, which is a French revolutionary symbol. It's basically like a Pleated red, white, and blue round badge thing you can put, like, you know, on a hat. Very soon after that, he was taken to uh, Le Ressoir National for a close shave. He was taken to the guillotine. 
I'm having fun with it. You are. <laughs> and that are. is actually one of the nicknames for the guillotine. I was like, please let it have a nickname I can work with. And I saw La Rassoie Nationale, the national razor. I was like, yeah, we're, there we go. Boom. Then finally, Napoleon Bonaparte. He had a man come requesting, demanding, actually, an interview. The man was dressed all in red. Word went around that the man, as this visit had been overheard, was upset that this was his third visit, and it didn't seem like Napoleon was doing as the man in red had been asking all along, which was either finish his empire expansion or make peace. And he said to Napoleon, you have three months to get your shit together. Three months later, Napoleon was forced to abdicate and then was exiled. That man in red was Santa Claus. He knew (laughs) that he had not been nice, but yet had been naughty. He really is giving us presents in just, you know, eating the rich. I know. I feel like you just spoiled the uh, the buildup that she was creating to to drop Santa on everyone. <laughs> Spoiler. So the red man also warned of Louis the Eighteenth's death in eighteen twenty four. Then he was seen one last time in eighteen seventy one by a caretaker at the Louvre, and then the skies lit up immediately afterwards because the Tuileries Palace was set on fire. Wonderbar. The accelerants, you'll enjoy this, included turpentine, petroleum, and liquid tar. Hooray. Yeah. All the things. It burnt to the ground that night, and even though restoration was possible, they decided not to, and the remnants were torn down and sold in 1882. The gardens are now 55 acres, and just a nice place to stroll around, and lots of people use it as a, a public hanging out spot. There is one other story of how the Red Man came about, a different story from the whole assassin thing. And it's that Catherine de' Medici had ordered the construction of the Tuileries Palace and then got pissed off that it was going slow. Maybe they were taking lots of siestas. So she moved in. I know that's Spanish. Uh, (laughs) So she moved in while construction was ongoing and found out that apparently she'd been beaten to the punch on this moving in because a red specter had taken over the place. And that apparition told her, or one of her astrologies prophesied this, it's one of, one of the two, uh, you are going to die near Saint-Germain. So she's like, uh, do you mean the parish Saint-Germain or the church Saint-Germain? Because they're both like super close. So this is not great news. And she gets no answer. So she moves far away. Back to her chateau, over a hundred miles from the Tuileries and Saint-Germain. And later on, she is, in fact, dying. A priest comes to deliver the last rites. And she says, young man, what's your name? Julien de Saint-Germain, he answers. So she did indeed die near Saint-Germain. I I can just imagine her face like, fuck me, are you serious? (laughs) Yeah, she's like, really? Come on, you just heard the story and you're putting me on. Oh, no, you're right. Oh, shit. So she probably actually left Paris because of unrest. Although she did spend uh, a lot of time at the Tuileries before it was finished. She was there a lot. She held events. She was there walking through the gardens and planning religious massacres. You know, girly stuff. So, yeah. 
As you do. As you do. So that is the Jardin du Tuileries and uh, probably a lot of mispronunciations, but you know what? Um, I tried. <laughs> I think you did a wonderful job. Thank you. I'm going to go It's as good as the language deserves. <laughs> oh, stop it. I love French and I love the French and I love France. So uh, I'm going to go off the rails is what I'm going to do. Ooh, I'm excited about this. I love a renegade. I have some like longer stories I could tell you about, like the trolls of Tromsky and I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to tell you a bunch of really short ones. Okay. Because I thought they were the most interesting and had the least amount of information. So uh, you'll appreciate this. I'm going to tell you about Dolan, otherwise known as the Fairy Tale Hotel. Ooh. It is quite beautiful when you see the images. It looks like it came out of a storybook. It really does. It's amazing. It's got turrets and the, the cottage fairy tale feel. It is a lavish Norwegian establishment that has a painting within a painting feel. Mm-hmm. It might look pretty on the outside unless you're in room 17. In the 1800s, a British lady who went by the name of Miss Greenfield came as a guest to stay for several months. And she gave birth in room 17. Then she returned to England the next day. Mm. The next morning, the cleaning lady had to break the door down to get into the room and found far more than she had bargained for. Miss Greenfield had gone, and there was a tiny corpse of a newborn baby wrapped in a bloody sheet. And that cleaning lady was like, well, this just rocketed way above my pay grade. Yeah. Whether or not the baby was a stillborn or was murdered, nobody knows. Mm. They did eventually track the mother down to put her on trial, but she committed suicide before any verdict could ever be given. Uh, To this day, guests claim they can feel her presence in the hotel. Some have said that they've seen her during the night in their rooms. Hotel staff still set a table and light a candle for her in a useless attempt to ward off evil intentions. Robert the Doll-esque. Yes. Um, <laughs> do, they, do they imagine that she's watching them in the bath? <laughs> I, they did not really get into that. All right, that okay, so I want to... When you said that she, she died by suicide, and at first I was like, oh, well, that probably answers the question. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. Because imagine if you had a stillbirth... And then you were being prosecuted for murder. You'd probably also there's there's a chance. Not there's also probably, a chance that a, she had really bad postpartum depression too. Also that, yeah, which didn't exist back then. But um, yeah, not in you know people's heads, but in reality, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and no guest can stand to stay the night in the room. They report that they are kept awake all night by a baby crying. Oh no. Uh, but I still want to go there. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Just don't stay in room 17. And then we're going to skip over to Hotel Union Oi. Built in 1891, Hotel Union Oi is a throwback to Victorian times. There are no TVs, no Wi-Fi, and it comes with its own telenovela, if you will. Ooh, and aside from the story being good, you really wanted to say Hotel Union Oi. Oi. <laughs> 
So a few years after the hotel's grand opening, a maid named Linda fell head over heels in love with a German soldier who served Kaiser Wilhelm II. Because there's no tragedy without a love triangle. Hmm. Linda's lover was, of course, already committed to another. He asked his wife for a divorce, and she refused, (laughs) so he killed himself. Then Linda drowned herself. Oh, my. Fast forward a few hundred years, and Linda is still not over it. She can be heard sobbing inconsolably in the blue room. Um, and, and then it says, don't get too excited. To snap up these quarters, you have to do so at least a year in advance. People really want to stay in this room with, with Linda. Just listen to her cry inconsolably all I, night? I guess. Um, there, I, but it says to be sure to leave a plate of onions <laughs> by the door. <laughs> and you may be able to coax Linda into paying you a reluctant visit. <laughs> I don't know. If I am haunting you, please leave cheese. Um, We do have a fun white lady story over at Fredrickson Fortress. Mm. The fortress was attacked six times but never conquered. In 1718, King Charles XII of Sweden stormed it with over 40,000 soldiers. So he thought it was going to be the greatest siege ever, but five minutes later, he was hit with a stray bullet square in between the eyes. Oops. So, a uh, very quick battle there. And they have the Den Hivit Dame, the white lady, who is said to live in the fortress. When her lover was killed by a cannonball shot by the Swedish forces during the siege, she jumped off a fortress wall to her death. She still appears at midnight near the White Tower and has been sometimes waving and sometimes staring into town. Hmm. And I think I'm going to leave it there. I mean, I have a couple more, but those were the most fun ones. So I I think I'm going to leave it there and and, uh, say, hooray, haunted Norway. Hooray, haunted Norway. Okay, so I want to know, Amber. Yes. If you were haunting a place and people wanted to summon your spirit, what could they leave on a plate outside your door to summon you? Um, what would draw you to them? What would draw me? Definitely not like a plate of raw onions. No. No onions no. at all for me. Um, if you leave onions, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll just like haunt you meanly. I feel like if you leave me like coffee or booze or like chicken wings. There you go. Yeah. Like I would, I would probably come hang out with you. If, if you really want to piss me off, leave a salad. <laughs> Amber's not a fan of the salads. Chris, how about you? What would uh, you have left on a plate outside the door in order to summon your ghostly spirits? Steak, medium rare. I should have guessed. What, what cut of steak? So let's, let's get specific. What cut of steak? Probably a tomahawk. Oh. Oh, boy. You and your fancy ass. 150 <laughs> yeah. bucks if you want Chris's ghost to visit. Yeah, absolutely. I am not a cheap date. You want Chris's ghost to haunt you. You better pay up. That is, that is an excellent choice. Well, you all should go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you can review podcasts and tell us if we were to summon your ghost with a foodstuff 
or a drink stuff placed outside your door, what would that be? So you didn't answer the question. I did. I said cheese. Oh, okay. I said cheese. <laughs> when you tell the story, I was like, if you want me, just get me some cheese. <laughs> Not the onions. Is there a specific kind of cheese, though, or just any and all cheese? If a cheese plate, some charcuterie, perhaps? Oh, a charcuterie charcuterie board would be wonderful. If you're going to go specific, if you really want to be specific, I like very, very sharp cheddars in particular and uh, drunken goat. Yum. Those really ring my bell. So, yeah. Just ring my bell. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're not even going to finish the line. I could hear it in my voice. I was like, nope, we're nope, not going to get there. That hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, come over and tell us what food stuff, drink stuff, any stuff we could leave outside a hotel door in order to summon your ghostly spirit over on iTunes. And you can do that with a five-star review, of course, because we just of told course. you awesome ghost stories. Yes, do that. Yes. So, there's that. And uh, also, uh, hello to all of our new listeners. Hello, new friends. <laughs> new friends that we have out there in the world. Now, I should state that normally we are old-timey crimey, not old-timey ghost stories, but... It's spooky-ween. It's spooky-ween, as is known in our household and thus on this podcast. And so this is the month when we're getting spooky and trying to incorporate some crime where we can, be, which kind of in, in some stories comes naturally and it some does. stories doesn't. So yeah, just know that this is our spooky and then we'll get back to the crimes in November and there'll still be some spooky stuff because it also, again, with crime comes some spooky stuff. There's almost, you know, one out of every two or three stories probably has a ghost somewhere in there or some weird happenstance that happens. So yeah. Welcome to our show, and we really appreciate you listening. Enjoy the back catalog, and of course, if you uh, listen to all that, there's our Patreon that I mentioned at the top of the show. Links, of course, are in the show notes. If you guys like me going off the rails, be a Patreon member. I go off the rails a lot over there. She's just permanently off the rails. And we have a quick shout-out to give to new patron, Brian Kim. And if you'd like me to uh, sing your name, as I just did our new friend Brian's, then you can become a Patreon. Or you can send us uh, any amount of money, really. Uh, Even a a dime will do it via PayPal at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. There's our social media I mentioned earlier in the show and other ways to support us are in our link tree and also, of course, in the show notes. Gonna get that tattooed on me, I swear to God. Hi, Brian. (laughs) Hi, Brian. So... Chris. Now, Chris and I have a podcast together that you should be listening to. It is Short Story, Short Podcast. I bet you can't guess where you can find a link to it. (laughs) And we talk about short stories briefly, and we're having a lot of fun over there, aren't we, Chris? We sure are, Christy. We're talking about everything from Stephen King to other Stephen King... (laughs) To that story about that kid who was like creepy, but then the other kid who wasn't creepy. And yeah. That is the best summation of uh, the recent history on Short Story Short Podcast that I can possibly imagine. So you can come over there and we are kind of getting a little spooky for Halloween. Uh, we, we did some Stephen King. We're doing some Daphne du Maurier coming up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're having fun over there and getting spooky stories, too, which is very enjoyable. And uh, Chris, you want to tell us about your other podcast and also where we can find you out there on the big, wide Internet? You can find me all over the place on the Internet. Uh, I'm Johnny Eponymous everywhere. 
But uh, the other podcast I do, the two, there's Dial a Crime, in which I tell an unsuspecting person a crime of my choosing without them really knowing that I'm going to do it. And uh, you can find that. It'll be in the show notes. And I also do Zodiac Speaking about the Zodiac murders. Uh, very famous. Some news recently happening. So I put out an episode the other day. And yeah. And you can just find me on the Facebook, the Twitter, the MySpace, all over the place. Is there still MySpace? Oh, yeah. It's oh my better gosh. than never. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. And hey, what do you have going on this week? Oh, you know, same as usual, the whole just sitting around writing and writing and writing, writing about the occult for my zine, The Drink Tank, and uh, writing about Mothman for my zine, Claims Department, and writing about Vietnam for my zine, Journey Planet. So it's all over the place. I'm going to have a lot of links to put in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> and you actually do them. I don't bother. So <laughs> I do. Yes, I'm. I'm weirdly conscientious like that. I, I don't know if anyone has ever clicked on anything in our show notes, but uh, it will always be there. So that sounds like fun. And I also owe you uh, something for a zine. We need to talk about deadlines there because uh, I've definitely, definitely started it. And made a lot of progress. I'm lying out my ass. So, um, Amber, what are you up to this week? Uh, I am still very much in the process of working myself to death. And I'm getting my my breakfast nook delivered this week, and I am so very excited. Yay! Because it, it only took a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, things are taking a while lately. So it's supposed to be here this week, and then I will have uh, construction to do for the rest of the week until I have a breakfast nook. Hooray! <laughs> Yay! Uh, I am uh, obviously working on that uh <laughs> story I mentioned for Chris's scene. So that's, that's got to happen. And uh, I'm also, I'm, oh, honestly, uh, I've been rewatching Unsolved Mysteries and in like the old, you know, Robert Stack. And in season eight, they change things and I don't like it. You watch seven seasons of a show and then all of a sudden they don't have the iconic theme song anymore. Oh my gosh. And I've thought about it. Because the, the new theme song is sort of X-Files-esque. And I looked it up, and X-Files started two years before that change was made. So I wonder if they were just kind of like, well, X-Files is popular, so let's try and draw people in that way. But I'm just very, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm having a very hard time dealing with this in my rewatch. And I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to have to find comfort in the bad wigs and the hilarious reconstructions of supernatural events and UFOs. That's that's yeah. my only solace, really. That's all I have. Can't you just download the original theme song and then mute and play that just to, to help yourself? I mean, that's a lot of effort. And I'm a, when it comes down to it, I, I'm conscientious when it comes to what I do for, for the world. Okay, that just the world mute doesn't do. Then. But yeah, I I can deal with it. I can deal with it. I'm just I'm just upset. When it started, I was like, what is this bullshit? I was not amused. I was not pleased. <laughs> like, and the, the funny thing about that is, is I had a weird thing that happened to me when I was younger, when I was in like my teen years, and it was right after I'd watched a, a couple episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. 
And so after that weird, scary thing happened, I was freaked out by the theme song. So, you know, as soon as it would come on the TV, I would fly across the room to turn off the TV if I had a TV without a remote or whatever, or fly across the room to find the remote, whatever. And so it took me years and years to get over that. And, and now you're so in love with it, you can't, you can't exist without it. Yeah, now I'm upset because it's not there anymore. <laughs> so this thing that was the reason that I didn't watch Unsolved Mysteries for years is now the reason that I'm like, I might not watch any more Unsolved Mysteries, goddammit, because it's not there. So yeah, it's kind of funny, and I'm I'm, I'm weird like that. But so yeah, that's that's my week is uh, writing a thing for Chris and uh, dealing with my uh, really outsized upset at the changing of a theme song that they were perfectly within their rights to do, and you know, hooray for modernization, I guess. So so yeah, that's my bullshit, and Spooky Ween will continue next week. We will have a banger of a show for you and it will be about something that I will come up with <laughs> or Amber will come up with. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're, we're seat of our pants here. So, all right. So we will see you next week and continue to enjoy. Uh, and thank you for listening to our spooky words. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> My sources are Paul McQueen on a culture trip, Camarque, Abea de Mortemay, those are both the websites for the locations, The World's Creepiest Places by Bob Curran and Ian Daniels, The Fairy Mythology by Thomas Kitely, Jerry Walton on jerrywalton.com, the wiki page for Tuileries, I did so well up until now, Tuileries Garden, and Lippincott's Monthly Magazine, Volume 43, 1889. My sources this week are thetravel.com by Lana Alston, werewolves.com by somebody named Catherine. Nice. Uh, a quick blurb on Pinterest, ilovebergen.net by Emma Vesterheim, norwegianamerican.com by Christine Foster Maloney, Minimal, minimalistsometimes.com, insider by Melissa Wiley, Smithsonian Mag by Rachel Neuer, the Nordic Escape seeksghosts.blogspot.com by Virginia Lamkin and the Norwegian Wikipedia. My sources were The Shadowlands, Hauntings, and Non-UFO Related Paranormal Materials. Also, Long Conversations with My Father, as well as Less Than Zero, one of the greatest books ever written. Hold on one sec. There's something weird going on here. Well, the, I think that the female werewolf is probably haunting our internet. Must be it. Ow! Yeah.